Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning, everyone. If the United States is losing Mustafa Akyal, it may be losing the world. If you don't know Mustafa Akyal, he has long been a leading proponent of liberalizing Islam. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute think tank. He has been a contributing New York Times columnist in recent years. And he focuses on what he calls Islam and modernity. For example, his book published in 2021 was called Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom, and Tolerance. You get the idea. A decade earlier, he wrote one called Islam Without Extremes, and he's got one coming out later this year called The Islamic Moses, How the Prophet Inspired Jews and Muslims to Flourish Together and Change the World. But now, as the Gaza death toll approaches 30,000, in the response to October 7th, and President Biden refuses to place any conditions on military aid to Israel as he presses Congress for billions more for them, Mustafa Akyal has an analysis in Foreign Policy magazine called The West is Losing Liberal Islam. Mustafa Akyal joins me now. Thanks very much for coming on. Welcome to WNYC. Thank you so much uh, for having me, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you first let our listeners get to know you and your work a little bit more? Your books seem to argue, as a publisher's note puts it, that values often associated with Western enlightenment, freedom, reason, tolerance, and appreciation of science, had Islamic counterparts, which sadly were cast aside in favor of more dogmatic views, often for political ends. That's a quote. Uh, can you give us a brief synopsis of what your aims have been in writing your books? Sure, Brian. Um, I'm originally from Turkey. I used to be a journalist, author, academic there, and I switched to the U.S. side in the past six years, found a home at the Cato Institute to work on these ideas of freedom and toleration and pluralism in Islam. And uh, these days, I mean, in the past couple of decades, especially people look into the Muslim world and they see the Taliban, the Iranian regime, militants group like Hamas, and they generally get a dark picture but this is a crisis in the Islamic civilization, as I call it. And there were long centuries where the Islamic civilization were only more tolerant than West, than the West. I mean, when Jews were persecuted in Spain, they found a safe home in the Ottoman Empire. Islam was the place where philosophy flourished and, and new inventions came a thousand years ago. So there was this golden age. And what was the values behind that? And I think there was there are roots in Islam to advocate for individual freedom, for freedom of conscience. A lot of Muslims intuitively already believe in these values, but my work is about finding those roots within the Islamic tradition for toleration, freedom, for uh, an open society, and, and criticize, of course, more theocratic and, and militant and hateful views. Uh, and, and a part of that is, has, has been actually bridging Muslims and Jews, because I believe Islam and Judaism are very similar religions, you know, people speak of the Judeo-Christian tradition, which is true, but I also speak about the Judeo-Islamic tradition. Actually, it's a part of my forthcoming book, The Islamic Moses. And actually, until this conflict in the Middle East, Jews and Muslims did pretty well in history compared to uh, the Christian 
uh, story because of anti-Semitism in Europe and all that. When when you say so, uh, yeah. until this current conflict, do you mean like the last hundred years of Zionism and the Arab Yeah, I mean the last hundred years. Yeah. yeah, the last hundred years. I mean, of course, the escalation in October 7 was particularly horrific. I mean, I was appalled to see innocent Israelis killed by Hamas on October 7, and I said it out loud. There were other Muslims who said that uh, in Islam, yes, there's the idea of even a holy war, but it never involves in attacking directly innocent civilians. So, uh, however, yeah, this is an escalation in something that's going on. And I mean, I, I see the problem as nationalism here, right? I mean, there are two nationalisms claiming the same land. Uh, it's inevitable that there will be a conflict, but we can try to find a solution by curbing maximalists on both sides mm -hmm. and making two people somehow share the land and, and live together. And I'm not the person to propose its formula. I'm not Arab, I'm not Jew. But as, as someone who sympathizes with the stories of both sides, I think that's what we should do. However, in the past three months, I mean, October 7 was horrific. It had to be condemned, and I, it, Israel had the right to respond. I, I accept that. But the nature of the response, the indiscriminate bombing, the colossal destruction of the whole Gaza Strip almost, uh, 30,000 almost people killed, that is unacceptable. That is outrageous as well. And the fact that you know Western governments seem to support this, especially in the United States, is having profound consequences in the Muslim psychology across the world. And my article in, the, in Foreign Policy was a warning about that. So let's go into some specifics there. Your headline on that article in Foreign Policy, again, is the West is losing liberal Islam. And you cite, as an example, the Pakistani diplomat, Hinarabani Kar, who you describe as a liberal Muslim who became the first female foreign affairs minister of Pakistan in 2011. What is her background in liberalization, and what is she saying today? Well, I mean, she was hailed as the first female prime minister in Pakistan, which is a country with patriarchal... Or foreign minister, right? Yeah, first foreign minister, yeah. Uh, and she's been active on, uh, on, on uh, civil society and doing some good work there. And she's just one example. I mean, maybe I should, Brian, explain what do I mean by liberal Muslims? I mean, Please. Uh, I, I would call, call myself a Muslim liberal or a liberal Muslim. And that means I believe in liberal democracy. I don't think Islam comes with a package of a theocratic government, as the Iranian state would believe or the Taliban would believe. I think Muslims are better off in a society where they're not coerced to practice Islam. They practice it willingly, and I'm very respectful to that, and I, I myself am Muslim. Um, and I believe in values like you know elections and freedom of speech and expression, and people should be able to criticize religion, even it's better for religion. So that's my approach. And there are a lot of Muslims who believe in these values. And uh, and they've typically, for 200 years almost by now, looked at Western societies as generally as a source of inspiration. You see, I mean, uh, in America, they, they have freedom of religion, and that's great for everybody. You can wear your headscarf, and you don't have to. It's, it's better. Uh, everybody can say their uh, opinion. So there are a lot of things these uh, values typically admired in, in Western societies. However, there's another part of the picture, which is Western colonialism. These societies also come and occupy you. These societies come with your, with their drones, with their military intervention. So that has been the darker side of the story in the past 200 years. And I think the escalation in Gaza, the destruction in Gaza, 
is just adding a, a terrible, terrible new chapter to that uh, to that dilemma where Muslims like many things, these liberal Muslims, many things in liberal societies, but then mm -hmm. they see double standards, they see hypocrisies, they see indifference to their own val own lives and their suffering, which uh, pushes people off. And, and it will help the more illiberal forces. It will help militant forces in the Muslim world. It will help Iran, Russia, and China. Uh, and, and if the West, even just for strategic reasons, uh, is, is thinking about these things, they should uh, immediately head for peace and de-escalation. And you cite uh, that Pakistani diplomat Hina Rabbani Kar and some of the things she's saying. As an example, you cite Turkish journalist Nihal Bengiso Karasa, if I'm saying that right, who wrote a lamentation called Suicide of the West. And you cite a Pakistani journalist, Umar Farooq, who wrote The War in Gaza is Changing the Muslim World and not in a good way, you write. Would you tell us more about what Farouk wrote? Maybe that's a, a way in to a further description of what you're saying? Yeah, definitely. Among the people you listed, Nihal Bengisu Karanja, the Turkish journalist, she's a friend of mine, and I think her column was very powerful, and I quoted that. Others I just read online in the past couple of months, and the Pakistani journalist, uh, Omar Farouk, was saying uh, the people look into what's happening, right? And maybe it's not full on CNN 24 hours, but on Al Jazeera, on social media, people are constantly seeing the children being killed by bombs and, and even sometimes civilians shot to death and thousands and thousands and more is coming every day. And people are grossed out and, and enraged and that, that this is happening and the U.S. is supporting this, or the U.S. is allowing this, and U.S. is giving military support and all that. And it is... It is turning into anti-Americanism. It's turning into anti-Westernism. And he was saying these feelings will be there and they will have deep impact and it will further empower militant groups, groups like Al-Qaeda, groups like ISIS that we all hate and we all see as the problem is a threat to all of us. But if you look into the propaganda of those groups, Hamas is one of them, of course, more regional. Uh, all their propaganda is about Muslims being persecuted by these evil powers. And so they should fight against these evil powers. And of course, they do it in a very inhumane way, with terroristic methods, and that's all wrong. But they surf on a certain psychology. And that psychology has been exacerbated uh, by, by this current conflict. And, and he was saying that this will incubate new groups, maybe new even militant groups across the Muslim world. On the other hand, uh, strategically, people will not believe in the Western norms anymore. China will, I think, uh, gain some prestige, undeservedly so, because China is a persecutor, big persecutor of Muslims. I actually call it the main Islamophobic state in the world. I mean, the persecution of Uyghurs that China has been carrying out for decades and more intensely in the past few years. Mm -hmm. It is there. But when you look at Gaza, even China sounds more humane and uh, careful, uh, caring about Palestinian civilians, although probably hypocritically. So Muslim societies will be losing faith and, and liberals who believe in uh, values that we see in the West will have less authority to speak out. That was what Nihal Bengi Sukareja was saying. She was saying, who will be able to speak about Western values or liberal democratic ideas in, in this part of the world anymore. Nobody will listen to them. And that is one consequence of this trouble bloodshed. Listeners, your calls are welcome and your texts for Mustafa Akyal, author of Reopening Muslim Minds, 
Among other books, a Cato Institute senior fellow, now the author of the article in Foreign Policy magazine, The West is Losing Liberal Islam. Listeners, are you what you would consider a liberal Muslim who identifies with what he's saying or maybe does not? And anyone else may call with questions and thoughts or text, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. I know you're not a military expert, but could it have been different? Supporters of this Israeli response argue that Hamas has promised more October 7th-style attacks on Israel if it can pull them off, kind of daring Israel to come get them as Hamas embeds its fighters among civilians, making this kind of carnage sort of inevitable if Israel is going to mount an effective um, preventive defense against Hamas's military capabilities. So to, to what degree, if any, do the liberal Muslims you're writing about see Hamas as pulling this response on purpose and blame them too, not let Israel off the hook necessarily, but blame Hamas too. The liberalism you generally write about could view Hamas as one of the extremist groups to be rejected for its core views and actions. I mean, definitely Hamas is a huge problem. It's a terrorist group. It has made this Palestinian-Israeli conflict uh, much less resolvable, first of all, because of the violence it has justified against civilians. Uh, it began in the especially early 2000s with Hamas suicide attacks in, uh, in Tel Aviv or you know, other Israeli uh, cities. And that has been a major shift. I mean, in, actually, in classical Islam, there is this idea of jihad. Yes, holy war, it was there. Uh, it could mean war. It could mean also spiritual struggle, too. But in classical Islam, war never meant you go and directly kill innocent civilians. Actually, there was concern against that. There is a famous hadith or saying of Prophet Muhammad, which says, do not kill women, children, elderly in war, and, and don't attack monks and, and, and you know religious people. Uh, so that there was that concern typically, but that was cast aside by militant groups in the 70s and 80s, and Hamas went that way. So also by not accepting Israel in a two-state solution, which I think should be the ultimate solution, but by saying we will take it all, we will just uproot Israel, Hamas made also chances of peace minimal. So yeah, Hamas is a big part of the problem. But how do you deal with a group like Hamas? I mean, I'm not a military expert, but I've been following what military experts have been saying. In a, uh, Hamas doesn't just come out of nothing, right? I mean, there's the 70-year-old, and since 1967, there's the occupation of Palestinian lands. Israel's pulled back from Gaza in the early 2000s, but still it was blockaded. And still Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, West Bank are occupied and Israelis are building more settlements and uh, President Netanyahu, sorry, Prime Minister Netanyahu just showed the map of Israel, which gets all the land, all of it from the river to the sea. So Israel is claiming these things. So these kind of developments are empowering groups like Hamas, making them more fanatic, making them more ferocious. Uh, people have said that, for example, some of the Hamas terrorists who did October 7, they were the children of people who were killed in previous bombings of Gaza by the Israeli forces. There were other, you know, because carpet bombing almost campaigns before this one, smaller scale, but there were. So the thing is, yes, Hamas is a tr trouble, but this trouble comes out of a desperation of a people. 
Uh, and I know this from Turkey. I mean, my Turkey country, Turkey, has a long uh, trouble with uh, quote-unquote Kurdish terrorists or Kurdish nationalist terrorists, the PKK's mm -hmm. typical example. And I've long argued that, yes, Turkey can fight you know, the PKK in a military means, but there will be never a military solution because the PKK is coming out of desperation of the Kurdish people in Turkey, which don't have the equal rights that they deserve. And although, and that is despite the fact that actually it's a much less intense con uh, conflict compared to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Well, on what Israel should technically have done, I mean, there are people who have written saying that the war could be much more targeted. It could be a bit more long-term. There could be more emphasis in saving the refugees, sorry, uh, the hostages through negotiations, which is actually almost the only way that has been used to, uh, has been successful to uh, in, in saving the hostages. Just yesterday, uh, Zach, Zach Buchamp in uh, Vox magazine has an article, How Israel's Went Wrong, and he says he spoke to military experts and it could have been much more different, much more pointed, not this ferocious and not this harmful. Again, I'm not a military expert, but a lot of military experts have said that this was not the only way and this is too indiscriminate and too catastrophic, uh, and I, I just believe in them. And I see the impact of this. I mean, the, the more destruction comes in and uh, Hamas will actually become more popular because people say, uh, I mean, some people will blame Hamas, rightly so, for bringing this help, bringing destruction. But other will say Israel is such a ferocious, you know, oppressor that you need tough guys against Israel. And, you know, Hamas will kind of begin to surf on that. Maybe not in Gaza Strip, but maybe somewhere else. But the conflict will go on. And I think the only way is to disarm this conflict as much as we can do. And that means a ceasefire, a, uh, a quick, uh, a very urgent relief. People are suffering. People are uh, starving in Gaza right now because of Israel limitations and the war situation. Kids are looking for food in, in trash cans and, and people are seeing this all across the world. Uh, and uh, yeah, Israel could have done much at, at a more humane campaign with more care for innocent lives but uh, that's not that's not the case as far as i can see and when you talk about ceasefire i don't know if you can get into the weeds at this level but we've been hearing in the news this morning uh the latest on the diplomatic end that the united states stood basically alone against the world yesterday in vetoing a ceasefire resolution in the UN Security Council proposed by Algeria. The vote was 13 to 1. The U.S. was the one. There was one country that abstained, the U.K., but 13 to 1 means the U.S. was isolated from allies, including Japan, South Korea, Switzerland, and France, who were among the 13. However, the U.S. does have an alternative ceasefire resolution that, from the way I read it, is more temporary and in a way more specific. It calls for both the release by Hamas of all the Israeli hostages and the lifting by Israel of any limits on the delivery of humanitarian aid. The U.S. position is that the version that the U.N. voted on is too permanent in a way that would benefit Hamas militarily too much. I, I wonder how you view all of that, the 13 to 1 alignment, whether the U.S. position has merits as sort of the moderate position on what kind of ceasefire, or, or you're not in, in the weeds of the tick-tock of the news in that way? Well, I think those 13 countries were more on the right side of history compared to the U.S., if you ask me. And I, I thought it 
thought the same thing for other uh, ceasefire resolutions in, in the past couple of months. And I think it's notable that not just Muslim-majority countries like Morocco or Algeria or uh, other Arab countries are just calling for a ceasefire, but also European countries, including France, as you mentioned, Belgium and Spain uh, have been also vocal about the unacceptable nature of this very destructive indiscriminate campaign. Uh, and yes, U.S. stands alone, and, and some Americans may be proud of that, but I would uh, tell them, well, why is it that the whole world think that all this destruction is unacceptable and only the U.S. You know, goes for a certain direction? And I think uh, maybe Americans are not feeling exactly what's going on in that part of the world. It's too distant. Maybe they're just too focused on, quote-unquote, destroying Hamas. I mean, destroying Hamas would be a legitimate goal, but at what cost? Uh, you, you can nuke a place, and yes, the terrorists in it will be destroyed, but then you will be killing a million, two million innocent civilians. Now, is that the world that we want to go back? I mean, do we want to go back to pre-Geneva Convention uh, world? I mean, some Israelis actually called for that uh, after uh, after October 7, and I was deeply worried about that. So I think this fixation on destroying Hamas, quote-unquote, would whatever cost is there, I think that's a wrong strategy. And it will not even destroy Hamas. I mean, Hamas will move on somewhere else. I mean, Hamas militants will maybe move, move out of Gaza. There are already some of them are out in other places. There will be Hamas 2.0 in somewhere else to take the revenge. Uh, this, again, reminds me of Turkey's very militant, blind anti-terrorism campaigns. You know, Turkey has been fighting PKK for a long time. And once a Turkish general said, we finished off PKK five times. And what he meant that Turkey has been able to kill some 30,000 PKK militants over the years. And that was like uh, PKK had maybe 7,000 terrorists or militants in one uh, situation. So you did it several times. But the new guys come up. Why? Because they want to take revenge of their nephew. And while you're killing the PKK people, you actually hurt so many innocent people, uh, innocent vi villagers, and so on and so forth. And th those stories are not forgotten. And, and you call them out, collateral damage. These things happen in war. But for the people whose children have been killed and whose villages have been destroyed, that's not a mere collateral damage. That's the worst thing that happened to them. And it leads to more radicalization. So I believe instead of uh, just this continued campaign until you get a, you claim a victory, uh, I think the victory would be to saving the hostages. Uh, that would be the most, I think, important thing. And people can see who are you to advise Israel. I mean, I'm not Israeli. Well, there are people, Israel, there are Israeli scholars or journalists or statesmen already saying these things, that this campaign is destructive. In newspaper Haaretz, that many of us probably read, I've been following what people are saying. Uh, I quoted Daniel Levy, Israeli journalist, on that, and he's saying this war is morally wrong and it's actually going to help Hamas delegitimize Israel standing internationally. There are other Israelis saying that what will give Israel security is peace. Unless you you make a peace with this kind of constant military uh, deterrence and show of force, you will be always on the edge uh, because uh, the lack of peace will create militancy on the other side and they will come after you. 
and the vicious cycle will go on, which is happening for already decades, and and, uh, and it's just getting worse. And uh, so I don't I don't see a good end to this vicious cycle. I think we all should aim for ending the vicious cycle uh, in a way that Arabs and Jews, the two peoples uh, in in that holy land, in that much troubled holy land, find a way to live together in peace. And when you when you write about um, the Israeli journalists uh, who see this as a dead end, as you quoted one of them writing, or Levi and Haaretz, as you were just describing. Um, I wonder... Gideon Levy, sorry, I just confused him. There's also Daniel Levy too, but I think Gideon, yeah. Uh, uh, if you see a, a similar alienation among liberal Jews in this country, a kind of losing the diaspora to any degree. I mean, I hear it on the phones on the show to some degree, admittedly a self-selecting unscientific sample. Um, but let's say Jews who had not been involved with Israel, but definitely supportive of Israel as a Jewish state that is constantly subject to terrorism and violent Hamas rejectionism, and they still support I Israel's existence as a Jewish state, not like river to the sea, as in some of the protests, but are now thinking, what kind of horror is that government committing in my name, in a way, as an American Jew, that's going to increase anti-Semitism and tarnish the way Israel appears for a long time to come. Uh, it's certainly happening among younger Jews who don't have the personal memory of the years right after the Holocaust when that country was created as a safe haven. We see that generational difference in the polls. So I wonder, um, you know, if, if you've been writing or thinking about potential consequences for Israel of doing this in this way for what's been very important historically, and that is the support of American Jews. Well, I'm really happy to see all those peaceniks, uh, peace promoters, liberals, human rights defenders on the Israeli uh, side or in the Jewish within the Jewish community in the West, including the United States. I think they're doing a great service to all of us by calling for a more humane and, and realistic, you know, solution to this very uh, bloody conflict. Uh, on on our side, I mean, I would say Muslims, we have to, and we are you know, doing the same thing. I myself have been trying to argue with Muslim communities uh, in the past couple of decades for many things, I mean, including human rights, freedom, and toleration, and all that, but in particular, Israel and Palestine, I myself have criticized the what I would call the maximalist uh, idea of from the river to the sea, you know, claiming all Palestine, because that will be perceived by Israelis as their self-destruction, and they will not allow it, and they will it will make them only more uh, more hardliner, which is what's happening. Um, so I think in every community we need people who can stand up against tribalism, who can try to understand what the people on the other side are going through. I mean, I understand the Jewish story. I mean, for 2,000 years, they were minorities persecuted in different parts of the world. Finally, they were able to get their own country. Uh, I understand that. I, I sympathize with the story in there. I, I sympathize with the feeling of being safe. But the downside of that is that country was also was harping on other people. It was not a people without, it was not a land without a people as there was a slogan about it. And Palestinians were living there. And you cannot just, just not see the tragedy that the Palestinians had in the past 70 years. They lost what used to be their country. Uh, and uh, I think 
our best hope is people among Muslims, among Jews, among Arabs, among, among Americans who really aspire to universal values that unite all of us. We all want to raise our kids in safety. We all want to have our own country on which we can be safe. We, we, we can say, this is my land and it's my home and I can build on it. And yes, there are militants uh, who, who, uh, who, who want more, who want conflict, but those militants are on both sides. Let's not forget that. I mean, one thing that has been really disturbing in the past couple of months is to see some people in the Israeli cabinet, far-right members of the cabinet, openly calling for uh, ethnic cleansing to say, let's bomb them as much as we can and let, let them all go to another country and let's take all Gaza and without any remorse, without any mercy for women and children. Uh, I, I heard the biblical uh, reference to Amalek, uh, biblical tribe Amalek, which is a disturbing part in the Bible being quoted by Israeli prime minister. So those are also very radical and disturbing views. So I think uh, in, in situations like this, we need peacemakers on both sides. And I'm very happy and, uh, and, and uh, I'm optimistic to see uh, Jewish people who lo they love Israel as they should, but also can say, well, I love my country, but here it's doing something wrong uh, and we have to correct it. And those are the true patriots, I think, in any society. Janet in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC with Mustafa Akhil, author of Reopening Muslim Minds, among other books, and now the writer of the article in Foreign Policy magazine, The West is Losing Liberal Islam. Hi, Janet. Um, good morning. I um, feel that enough is enough. I understand Israel's need to, to respond too many people have been killed. I, you know, also I know a little bit of student of history. The most of the times the Arabs have attacked, they haven't won. And I wish, you know, that is the reality of history of most of the wars between the Arabs and the Jews. And I want women, especially women, to sit down because I think if they, Hamas had asked the women. I don't think the the, um, the Palestinian women said, "Yeah, let's go ahead and do that." So I agree with the um, the gentleman that's speaking. We need peacekeepers to really sit down. And I also realize Hamas isn't just giving up and the Israelis are bombing them. Hamas is fighting back. We need to sit down with the peacekeepers, with a lot of women involved. Thank you. Thank you very much, Janet. Philip in Princeton, you're on WNYC. Hi, Philip. Oh, uh, hold on. Uh, I'm sorry, I hopped out on the headphones. Just a second. Uh, sure. Can you, can you hear me, guys? Yeah, we can Hello. hear you just fine. Good yep. morning, Brian. Appreciation. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Mustafa. I agree with everything what you say uh, right now. The analysis is always very deep. Uh, I'm really thankful for that. With only one uh, important premise, uh, the religion have to be separate from the state, otherwise the, otherwise the democracy doesn't work, and uh, the state always going to lean to the totalitarianism. If we don't actually have this, uh, there is no point to talking about anybody else, and if any uh, religion people, uh, whatever they call themselves, Christian, Jewish, or Muslim, think, you know, they have something to say to the state politics, they are wrong, because that's not how it's actually democracy uh, working. You're, you're, you're saying that religion is important to inform civic society, state society, 
no matter which religion no, no. In, in different countries? No, I, I, just, I just think, you know, every time in the human history when the religion actually get involved in the, uh, uh, in the state structure, uh, in any kind of involvement, it's always inclining the way of thinking about itself. It's the only one and changing the structure to its favor. As uh, you can yes. see over here, uh, I, I, with the Christian fundamentality in the United States. I see. States. Yes, you're saying the opposite of what I originally heard you were saying. Um, and, I mean, we could go down a whole rabbit hole, Mustafa, on how this is a religious conflict, but not really a religious conflict. It's really a, 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 a political and national conflict, but informed by religion. How would you put it? This is a political conflict in the sense that uh, this is not a conflict or whether Islam and Judaism are the true religion and they're fighting each other because they happen to be infidels or stuff like that. I mean, it's not about that. And actually, Islam and Judaism are pretty compatible religions and they're both staunchly monotheistic and historically Muslims and Jews, you know, lived in similar neighborhoods and uh, next to each other. Uh, it, it's a national conflict. So there, there, there are Israelis, and it's not about Jews as such. It's Israelis, the people who come and live yes. there, Israelis, and and Palestinians. And don't some Palestinians are not Muslim? I mean, some of them are Christian, but there's a minority Christian population there, which is being bombed in Gaza. I mean, which has also suffered pretty badly in this during this campaign. There are there has been Palestinian nationalist groups which are not Islamic at all. Some were Marxist nationalist groups. Um, but religion entered into the conflict sometimes as an exacerbating force. In Israel, you had the rise of what people call the radical right, especially since the 67 war. They believe that you know Judea and Samaria, as they call it, the West Bank, is being given them by God, so they have to build these settlements. I mean, they don't care what will this do to the prospects of peace. They think blind, you know, they, 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 this is what they have to do. Yes, and on the other side, yeah. a nationalist are, component, to be sure, that part. Yeah, I mean, if religion becomes mixed with nationalism, it becomes a very deadly mix. We see this all over the world. I mean, we see this in India these days. We see this in Pakistan, for sure. Even in Turkey, my country, there is a very, let's say, disturbing populism in the past 10 years, and, and it is a mixture of religion and nationalism. And in Israel and Palestine, you certainly have those forces today. But I think that's still precisely why we should work within religion, religious worldviews for peace, hmm. moderation, and toleration too. And that's mostly actually what my work is mostly about. One more call. Nofar in Manhattan. You're on WNYC. Hello, Nofar. Hi, am I coming through okay? Yep, we gotcha. All right, so um, my thoughts are not solution-focused. Um, they're not ones that I imagine people enjoy, but it's the trauma-informed perspective, acknowledging our evolutionary history, and when people are put in a situation where they are only thinking about survival, there is no logic. It's not that the discussion isn't important. Of course, we should keep having the discussion. The death tolls are terrifying numbers to see, and at the same time acknowledging that these are two sides with the traumatic history that are not going to come meet at the table, that are not thinking logically about right or wrong. And even if they are bringing the religious component as a right or wrong, they're bringing it from a point of fear. 
what we have to do as a society in the Western world, because we have that privilege, is acknowledging how terrifying, hopeless, helpless this situation is, and that the journey to coming up with a solution is long and not promised, and we'll have to accommodate the reality that this war will be endless for, I'm not sure how long, but for a pretty prolonged period of time. No, far. thank you very much. I think, Mustafa, that she makes a a very important point. Uh, I wonder what you were thinking as you were listening to Nofar, troubling, as she says. But, you know, bo- both sides, um, as in many conflicts, are coming from a place of fear, as she says. I think both sides think they're playing defense, uh, which leads to all this horrible offense on a certain level, if you agree. I totally agree. and uh, But that is precisely why Third parties, uh, like the U.S. government, like Western governments, or uh, let's say the West, quote-unquote, broadly as a civilization, should try to deflame the conflict and uh, disarm it and find a peaceful way out, instead of just siding with one of those very alarmed camps and saying that, yeah, do, do whatever you want against the others, we're with you. And that becomes a very destructive uh, conflict. I mean, Iran does that on the Palestinian side, for sure, saying, yeah, go fight all the time and we'll give you all the weapons and arms. And uh, Iran itself is safe out there, but you know, it's throwing sometimes Palestinians to this fire. But, but, but that's precisely why I think uh, the Western world should understand this as a uh, not black and white story, our guys versus the bad ones. This is a very terrible conflict that is hurting a lot of people there and actually putting the whole world in danger this is this is jerusalem involved i mean this is so symbolically important for billions of people out there in the world so this is a very deep conflict and the people who will help are people who will understand the pain of both sides and respect the pain of both sides and my piece was a criticism of those people in the West who don't seem to do that, who just only seem to see one story. Uh, and with that, they cannot help it. Mustafa Akyal's article in Foreign Policy magazine is called The West is Losing Liberal Islam. Thank you so much for having this conversation with us. Thank you so much for, Brian, having me. Let's hope for peace and, and reconciliation. Indeed. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. We turn the page. Much more to come.